This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Dave Butler, and he is the co-CEO of Dimensional Fund Advisors, which manages about $600 billion. Um, Dave has really a fascinating background, um, not only academically, but in the professional sports world uh, and the arc of his career over the past, let's call it 30 years, very much tracks the development of many of the dominant trends uh, that have taken place today in finance. So whether it's independent advice or indexing or multi-factor investing, he has been a part of, um, let's just call it the movement. Dimensional Funds uh, is very much a culture-driven, philosophically-driven firm uh, that he's been a large part of for a long time. Not only does he work with his co-CEO, Gerard O'Reilly, but he also works closely with Chairman David Booth, um, directing uh, Dimensional Funds into the latest iteration of, of where finance is going. Uh, if you are at all interested in independent advisory, asset management, factor-based investing, uh, uh, sustainable-based investing, I think you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Dave Butler. My special guest this week is David Butler. He is the co-CEO and head of global financial advisor services for Dimensional Fund Advisors, which manages over $600 billion. Dave got his BS from Berkeley and his MBA, same place, from in 1990? Berkeley. Yes, sir. Uh, before he decided to play around with round ball a little bit, uh, Dave Butler, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. Very so let's it. let's talk a little bit about pre-finance career. You played basketball in college, and you were drafted by the Celtics. That's right. Yeah, so I was drafted by the Celtics back in 1987. Uh-huh. And uh, the year I got drafted, oddly enough, they had a strike, an NBA player strike. So normally as a player, you get a chance to go try out, and they can right. tell you whether you have a shot to make it or not. Um, unfortunately, they didn't have a, a tryout that particular summer, so I made a decision to uh, go over to Turkey mm -hmm. and, and play my first year in Turkey. Um, I had a, I was a, actually a young kid just sitting around the house uh, in the summer, and um, you know, my I agent, know I'll go to the Middle East to my play. My agent ball. called and said, "Hey, Istanbul wants you to come over and try out." And I had been in great shape; I was getting ready for the Celtic camp. I uh, went over to Turkey, and they uh, they offered me uh, twice what I would have made as a rookie in the NBA. Really? And I thought to myself, I wasn't sure when the NBA strike would end. So I thought, well, I'll go over to Turkey. I'll work on my game. I'll get better. I'll make my you know first uh, year's worth of money, and then I'll come back, and I'll make the NBA the next year and make the Celtics. And But fate intervened, didn't it? Fate intervened, and uh, I think it was about halfway through my season in Istanbul, I ended up uh, tearing a, it was called a gastroc, which is your ga your calf muscle, so the muscle that connects your calf to your lower leg and I okay. I, uh, I sat out for probably about a week um, when you're the American player on a, on a European team like in Istanbul there's one American per team uh-huh uh, so is they, that by rule or in, in Istanbul in Turkey that was the rule is so that a minimum or a maximum minimum uh, and a maximum it's the only <laughs> number you can have so right. there's one player one American per team and uh -huh. uh, the expectation of course if you're that one player 
is that you need to lead the team in scoring. You need to lead the team in rebounding. You got you got to be the main person. So uh, when I got back to the states after my injury, uh, my doctor said, you know, that was probably a two to three month uh, sit out uh, type of really? an injury, and I was out for about a week. Uh, they taped me up, and I kind of faked my way through the rest of the season. And that was you did the, permanent damage. The downside is I did a little bit of permanent damage to yeah. my calf, and uh, never really quite got back to where I I thought I could actually make the NBA. Yeah, normally at that age you're fairly immortal and recover pretty quickly. This had to be was this a, a practice injury or an actual game injury? It was a actually a practice injury, so it was kind of one of those up and back drills. Yeah, and, yep. I, and I stopped and, and get ready to take off, and I heard this big snap. And you heard it. Yeah, other other people in the gym heard it too, and I thought my Achilles had snapped. Right, because you, I've that's watched, what you always hear. I've watched basketball games, and you hear that pop. Someone from the Knicks, I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, Tore their their um, was it maybe it was the ACL. Yeah, you heard yeah, it pop yeah, on television. Yeah. It's a horrifying sound because you know exactly what it is. Yeah, you know right when it happens, you know you're 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 done. Right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you know that was it. That was that was the moment when uh, you know my leg kind of just you know was uh, limited my my potential. So I, I always thought I was a, I was a good enough player. I played enough positions and I and I did enough things well. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't ever do anything super super well. Uh, but I was good enough to, I think, at, a, at, at my peak, in my highest level, at 100, I could, I could be the kind of guy that could collaborate and be on a team and six pass men the ball off well the bench. Is that what you're tip. thinking? Yeah, you know, I could, I could tip and I could rebound and I could do that sort of dirty man kind of work uh, on the basketball court that the coaches Charles, appreciated. Charles Oakley, Dennis Rodman role. Uh, uh, yeah, how I was, tall are you? I'm about six nine. Oh, so you could yeah. you you yeah, could bang a little bit in more, maybe a little bit more outside. I, I, you know, I had yeah. to score in, in Europe. I had to be able to shoot from the outside and. Mm-hmm. Three-point line had uh, had just come into the existence at that time, so the three-point line wasn't part of the game like it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't really shoot threes, but I but I could you know I was a good mid mid-range scorer. I could rebound, I could dunk, and I could I could jump pretty well. People used to um, you know think of me as a kind of a high flyer, kind of inside type of person. So that was always a a big part of my game. And and your brother played professionally as well. Yes, my brother Greg is a a bigger guy. He's about a seven footer. Oh, really? Uh, so this is my I call him my little brother, but uh, he's a seven footer. He played at Stanford. Uh, I played at Cal, and uh, so he and I actually played against each other in college. We Berkeley versus Stanford. Berkeley versus Stanford. So it's UCLA versus USC in the Bay Area kind of thing. Wow! And, uh, and we actually guarded each other. So we we were on the court playing against one another. Which I uh, imagine era, you did. Time. I imagine you did that growing up anyway. Not not unfamiliar with banging bodies. Yeah, with yeah. Your brother. No, we we played all day long. We had a we had a uh, you know, like every other kid. We had on a driveway front yard. We had a. We had a basket up on the uh, on the garage, uh-huh. and uh, we played. I had an older brother. My I do have an older brother, Mike. That uh, he's about six four, six five. So he's the um, runt of the litter. He's the runt of the litter. But uh, <laughs> you know, growing up, people used to laugh because they look at the three of us growing up. We're all about a year and a half to two years apart, but we were all the same size growing up. So that uh-huh. people thought we were triplets, possibly. Oh, really? Uh, there's That's no very funny. No size difference. But uh, he he was the he was the tougher guy. He he was more physical. Uh, so I used to play against him quite a bit and played him in the front yard all day long. And um, we used to go at it pretty well. Um, so, so you had to be thinking beyond a career in sports because not only do you go undergraduate at Berkeley, but you get your MBA. Was it business or finance? What What were you interested in when you were in school? Yeah, well, my uh, my dad was an accountant, and he was always a, a business finance guy. And also so, a tall tall person. Uh, he's six six three. Okay, yeah, so yeah, decent size. Um, but he uh, was always very focused on academics. So he. Mm-hmm. 
you know, regardless of all the athletic accomplishments or acknowledgments, he never really paid much attention to that. He always talked about school and books and nice shot, but and, and all what's that going on yeah, in your yeah, math? Yeah, what are you doing in class and right. so forth? So, um, so I was sort of geared in that direction anyway. And I, I think when I finally made my college decision, it came down to, to Cal, Stanford, and Harvard. Those are my final three mm-hmm. uh, choices. So obviously, there was some academic uh, aspect to, to those three names that uh, clearly weren't basketball. Uh, shops necessarily, but really great academic. Uh, you you got into Stanford, you got into Harvard, but you chose Berkeley right. because of the basketball. Uh, you know, I had a uh, the, the story goes. I went on a weekend visit to each one of those. Uh-huh. Uh, I went. I'm a California kid, Southern California. I went to Harvard. It was it happened to be 10 degrees and, and snowing, <laughs> right. and I just sort of scratched my head and I just I couldn't contemplate being out there in right. that in that weather. And I thought I was going to be back in California anyway. So came down to Cal Stanford, and uh, I went up to Stanford and for the weekend, and went out, went to two movies, and sat around a dorm. It was super boring at the time for me. Mm-hmm. I went to Cal, and uh, first night there, I went to a toga party at a fraternity house that I thought was great. <laughs> I went to a football game the next morning with, you know, great sun and and a lot of fun people around. We went to San Francisco that night, and. I came back and I, I told my mom, Dad, I go. I think I think this is where I want to be. It's going to be a great place to to play basketball and, and enjoy myself as a student. That's very funny. You have a unique vantage point because not only were you an athlete in college and professionally, but you work in finance. And the question that I have to ask is, how is it that there are so many horror stories about athletes frittering away all their money? They have it stolen from them. They haven't. Uh, managers who don't really do what's best for them. They are fairly reckless. What, why is this? You know, it's funny. Uh, David Booth, the founder of Dimensional, and I talk about this all the time because we're both big basketball fans. I, I think it's, um, you know, success comes really early to athletes. Very young, very immature. Very young, very immature. And uh, oftentimes you, you, and I will include myself, you feel invincible. So mm-hmm. athletically, you're bigger, you're stronger, you're faster, you can... You know, the idea of being 30 or 40 or 50 years old is, doesn't even seem plausible, you know, at the time. So the idea of actually thinking into the future and then saving or trying to be conservative about how you spend and so forth is just not uh, something that comes to mind at that right. time. And uh, I think that's part of the issue is I, I just don't think the maturity level is, is there to be able to differentiate how and why you would actually – uh, make a plan from a financial perspective, uh, you know, in, into your future. Mm-hmm. There think- was there was a huge Sports Illustrated article, I don't know, maybe ten years ago, yeah. or, and the numbers about the NFL are horrifying, and and the NBA and Major League Baseball not all that much better. Uh, has that changed at all? Are athletes becoming a little smarter about their money, or is it still the same? Sets of, of temptations and impulses. Well, I've been, I've been doing this for 25 years now at Dimensional, and I, I, I just, I've had the same discussion I did 25 years ago as really? I did today because people ask me that as an old athlete. You know, how do you change the energy and the momentum around athletes and their future in terms of finance? And it's, um, it just, it, I think it comes back to there's, a, there's an ego aspect. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a mentality that, you, you know, that this, this is never going to end. Uh, but to your point, you know, when you look at the NFL, I think the average career is three years. Yes. And the NBA is something on, on the order of two to three years. Uh, and when you think about how long, you know, this, these careers after the uh, athletic right. career is going to last, it's, it, it dwarfs anything athletically. But to get that message across to a young kid, I think is really tough. My, my personal perspective on it, and I've talked to David Booth about this as well, is I think the NCAA uh, with college athletes ought to 
put some for, sort of a trust fund together, uh, you know, with the money they're making off the NCAA tournament and so forth, put a trust fund together that's not touchable, not available till till age 25. Um, and at age 25, once a kid has had the chance to go through the professional process, maybe they get injured like I did, and they mm-hmm. start looking around and they think, hmm, you know, this athletic thing is not going to happen. Uh, then that's the moment when I think an, you know, a, a trust that would allow them to go back to school, go back to get a grad degree, et cetera, et cetera, would be, would be really, really valuable. At 21 or 20, it just is not going to happen because, again, they're invincible and they can't imagine that they're not the one that's going to go play uh, professional sports. I can tell you, every, every player on my Cal basketball team, all 12 guys, uh, thought for sure that they were the one that was going to go play the whole in distance. the NBA. And it's, yeah. it's frankly because all of them were all-state and all-American and all this and all that. Um, so there's a lot of ego into it. There's a lot of parental ego. I see that now with my kids. Really? Uh, the parents, uh, I think, are so uh, enamored uh, with sport and with the uh, the notoriety, if you will, that comes from athletic success that they get involved and they get energized by the whole thing. And I think that I think that's problematic as well. So, so I, you know, with my kids, I I, I try to just say, look. You know, it's all about school, just like my dad is, all about academics. If you happen to be a good basketball player or I happen to be a good volleyball player, great. God, God bless you. That might help you get into a better school, but it's never going to be about that. It's going to be all about academics. You, you seem horrifically rational and reasonable. We mentioned uh, the length of careers. You've been doing this for 25 years. Tell us how you transitioned from sports into finance. How did you end up on Wall Street? Well, you're, you're a New York guy, so I think you'll get a kick out of this, this story. So I, I uh, had gone, uh, well, I'll step back. I had started my MBA uh, as, a, as a basketball player in, in college. So I mm-hmm. happened to have a knee injury my junior year of college. Uh, and what that allowed me to do was it allowed me to start taking grad classes my last year while I had eligibility. Uh, so I'd started my MBA. Uh, I had gone off and I wanted to find out if I could play professionally. So I'd gone to Istanbul, to Turkey. The following year, I had gone to Japan. Um, but there's a window, I think, of five years to finish up your MBA once you had started it. So I decided I would go back uh, because of my calf injury. I'd go back and finish up my MBA at Berkeley. Um, and so I did that. And, uh, you know, like every athlete, I still had the bug. I thought I could still do a little something. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up going to, for my last year, I went to, uh, to England, to, to Birmingham uh, in the U.K., and I was about, I, I went for about two months and I realized that my leg was still as bad as it's ever been. I knew my career was done. I had mentally pretty much checked out. Um, I had actually interviewed uh, with Merrill Lynch uh, back in uh, my, my time at the, doing my MBA at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And at the time they said, well, we don't have a spot for you right now, but we'd love to keep in touch. We think we have a spot for you. Uh, so long story short, two months into it, I'm sitting in, in Birmingham, England, and my mom calls and said, uh, a gentleman from Merrill Lynch just called and wanted to, to talk to you. Uh, so I, I got on the phone with him, and he said, we've got a spot for you on the desk here in New York. Uh, we'd love to have you join. Uh, when can you start? And this was Saturday afternoon. See you Monday. Um, <laughs> I see you Monday. So I basically I, 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 got, uh, I called uh, my brother, who has, had been with the Knicks, uh, seven foot tall. I said, hey, Greg, I'm going to fly in Sunday. I said, i got to borrow a suit because I don't have one. <laughs> Uh, so I borrowed a suit from my brother Greg. I showed up in the office on Monday morning, and that was my quote-unquote transition out of athletics and into uh, into my career. So a lot shorter than most people. How, how long did you work in New York for? Uh, well, I was here, uh, I'd say, about seven years total. Mm-hmm. Uh, so about, I think, three and a half years uh, with Merrill, and then I, I came back with Dimensional for another uh, four years or so. In New York? In New York. We mm-hmm. actually had an office in, in Stanford, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And then when did you move to, was the... 
HQ in Austin back then, or no? It was in uh, Santa Monica, okay, in California. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And then now it's I believe it's Austin, and isn't there a, a new office opening up on the East Coast? Yeah, somewhere? we're opening up in Charlotte in February of next year, 2019. And is that going to be the new headquarters, or uh, like we'll, a we'll have basically two large headquarters? So, so Austin will hold uh, 1,200 people. Uh, Charlotte will hold about six to seven hundred, and we still have an office in San, uh, Santa Monica in California. We have about 150 people there. What was your initial role at DFA, and how did this eventually become co-CEO? Well, I was uh, just a long story short is I was at uh, you know here in New York, and I had um, uh, decided that I was going to get out of financial services. I didn't want to necessarily be in the industry. Uh, the the from what uh, I kind of I saw and I felt, and I. I decided I was going to go be a, a teacher and a coach in California. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had mentally decided I was going to move back to California. I, I was sitting on the desk one day. I was reading the Wall Street Journal, and I saw an ad that said Money Manager, Santa Monica, California. And I thought, well, you know, why not? I'll just send a resume out just in case. <laughs> um, you know, I have one more option. And it uh, turned out that that uh, Santa Monica, California firm was Dimensional Fund Advisors. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was on a Christmas break uh, back in 1994. Uh, I, f- I flew out to California. I went to their offices to do an interview, and I met uh, a gentleman named Dan Wheeler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dan was the first uh, financial advisor to use dimensional funds uh, in his practice. He was an independent advisor working through Schwab at the time, and he was running the practice, the business for dimensional. Uh, and Dan sat me down basically, and I had what I what we we you know, uh, we call a aha moment. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he just sat me down and said, here's how the capital markets work. Here's how we think. Here's what an independent advisor is. Here's how they act as a fiduciary to the client. You know, that combination is one that we think is the right answer for the end client and one that hasn't been delivered to clients uh, in, in financial services space. And I remember I walked out of that office and I thought to myself, you know, I could, I could, I could be part of this. This is something that's really interesting and exciting to me. Uh, and I, uh, I uh, went up and had lunch that day. Uh, Merton Miller, who is a Nobel Prize sure. winner, you know Dan uh, David Booth had another appointment to go to, so he asked uh, Dan to uh, take uh, Merton Miller to lunch with him. And Dan said, "Sure, but I got this this new guy here, Dave Butler, that uh, will have to go with us." And David said, "That's fine." And so I sat there at lunch with a uh, Nobel Prize winner in finance, Merton Miller, and he he talked about all those really simplistic, you know, financial concepts like you know. He used to say diversification is your buddy, you know, costs matter, you know, markets work, prices are efficient, et cetera, et cetera. And I just had this kind of epiphany of, of what I thought the capital markets could deliver and should be and then how that coupled with the independent advice story from Dan. And I thought, man, this is a place where I think I could, I could spend some time. Fa- fascinating. The firm manages over $600 billion. And we were talking about how you joined the firm and really sort as a very different type of firm from the bigger bulge bracket uh, firms that you had been used to in New York. How did that lead to your arc of your career at Dimensional Funds? Uh, what did you start doing and where did it take you? Well, I uh, started out as a what we call a regional director. So that's a, a person that works with advisors um, you know, out in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I, think the, I think the key point for me is as I mentioned earlier, we, you know, on Monday morning, uh, I, I walked into Dimensional's offices and had this interview, and, uh, and Dan Wheeler was, was terrific, and uh, he said, you know, why don't you come back the following Monday and start? 
Just like that. And, uh, you know, we didn't talk about any compensation. We didn't talk about what my title would be. We didn't talk about any detail other than the this idea that this concept, this mission, this energy that he was putting towards this approach around clients was what he felt good about. And, and basically over the following week, as I read and thought more about it, I felt really good about it as well. So I really joined what I would call a, you know, kind of a mission uh, rather than a, a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a passion for all of us. And we thought that we could change the way financial services were delivered in the country. And that was sort of our mantra and our energy in the early days. And, and, um, you know, people ask me, you know, why would you start with without any detail around what were you going to do? And I said, well, it was, it was it was that moment in my life, in my career, where I wanted to do something that I felt really good about and really passionate about, and, and I didn't really worry about the the monetary aspect or anything like that. Y- Yogi Berra said, "When you come to a fork in the road, take it." <laughs> yeah, and, there you and go. You did. There you go. So Wheel really helped create a fascinating aspect of the way dimensional funds operates, and I I want to spend some time on that. Instead of going straight to retail, the decision was made, and, and he really pushed this from the outside in, hey, why don't you have the advisors be your advocates and deal directly with them, and literally waged a door-to-door campaign starting mm-hmm. in, I guess, California, right? Mm-hmm. Is that is that really where yep, yep. he was operating? Yeah. How did this go from an idea to the, effectively the business yeah. model of dimensional yeah. funds? Well, you know, his and again, all of it goes towards Dan's creativity and imagination. But his view, he, he was a broker for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And he felt that the industry, in essence, was conflicted in the sense that product would be de- developed and delivered by uh, the industry. And then it would push be pushed to commission salesmen. And those commission salesmen would sell that product to clients. Right. And he thought the better better way to do that was to flip that around and, and change that in the sense that uh, as he became an independent advisor, he worked for the client, he worked in their best interest, he worked on their behalf, uh, and he um, changed the model to say, hey, the, the, this client you know, would basically sit at the top of the stack, and then this advisor, uh, this independent advisor, would be working for that client, and then the advisor would make decisions as to what was the best uh, solution, investment solution for the client um, in again, in, in their behalf and in their best interest. So it was a change in the model. This independent advice model was something that was very, very different that nobody had ever seen uh, really in the financial services space where we were really used to having product developed and being pushed as, as, as sold commission type products. So um, that was a big change. Dan had that idea. Uh, he also liked the idea of indexing. Uh, mm-hmm. So we liked this idea of low cost, uh, diversification, you know, tax efficiency, if you will. And he was using a, 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 a an S and P five hundred fund in his practice, and he had come across Dimensional uh, Small Cap Fund, which was mm-hmm. a called the Microcap Fund, um, the original fund the that original Booth fund, and Company put out. The original fund. It was called the nine ten fund at the time when I started, but it was nine ten. Why was it called nine ten? Nine ten, as in the ninth and tenth deciles, gotcha. so the bottom twenty percent of of stocks, if you will. So. Uh, that was the portfolio that he was interested in. He came to David Booth and to, to Rex Singfield, and he said, you know, I'd like to use these portfolios with my clients. And to their credit, you know, David and Rex said, well, you know, this is that's retail money. Uh, our expectation on retail money is that it's hot, meaning that if markets, in out. markets were good, they'd come in, and markets were bad, it would go back out. We can't have that kind of cash flow uh, in the portfolio. So uh, because it's disruptive and expensive and trading costs, Disruptive and expensive. We're in the smallest part of the market. We can't have that kind of trading. Right. Uh, we have institutional clients in those portfolios as well. 
So Dan came back and said, no, listen, we, we've got a different uh, uh, type of a model here. Uh, we're going to go educate these advisors. We're going to make sure that they're long-term buy-and-hold advisors. We're going to go through a methodical process to get them engaged and understand how we work and, and why we work. And that money will be compatible to the money that's already in the portfolio, institutional portfolio. We'll, so that's we'll how make, it started. We'll make retail look like it's institutional Exactly, money. exactly. And, so and, that was and how did that work out? It worked out uh, fabulously well. So, uh, you know, when I started, you know, we were about a billion and a half from mm-hmm. financial advisors. Today, I think we're 300 and... $65 billion from financial advisors. Well so over half. Well over half. It's been a significant part of the business. And um, the, the upside, too, is when you look at uh, what has actually transpired is that the, the quote-unquote retail assets, the individual assets, uh, have, have performed and acted and been very compatible to the institutional assets in the fund. So there, there hasn't been a, a retail aspect to the kind of the in and out of the markets based on market performance. There's been a nice, consistent... Uh, cash flow in 2008, 2009 in particular, when mm-hmm. markets were you know, tanking and there's a lot of fear and emotion in the market. Um, I think there was $500 billion that went out of the market um, over a couple-year period out of equity mutual funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and from Dimensional's case, we actually had positive net flows during that time period, uh, positive uh, over that time period and over each quarter uh, during that time period. And that was because of the advisor's role and the discipline that they provided to the client to make sure that that client you know, understood why their assets were invested the way they were, and they were able to keep the emotions intact so that people had a chance um, at the long-term returns that we always talk about of you know, 10% for the equity markets. If you're not in the market full-time, you're going to have a hard time getting those long-term rates of return. So the model was really different. Uh, it was brand new at that time. The idea of an independent advisor wasn't, was more an idea than actual reality. And um, what we see now, it's we've seen a real transition towards this model in a, in a significant way. Quite, quite interesting. What is it that you have and the firm has educated clients about that allowed them to think about investing for the long term? And I know this is hindsight, but I have to point out, if you were a buyer during the financial crisis, well, markets have since tripled. If you were a seller, probably didn't help your returns. Yeah, I think the concept of meeting expectations is important here. So when I think about why we had the kind of inflows that we had and and, uh, the performance that that, uh, transpired over that time, is I I think the advisors uh, did a terrific job of educating their clients. Uh, And when I say educating, I'm talking about what is it that we expect from the capital markets? So long term, if you look back to 1926, you know equities have returned 10%. Um, but there's a lot of time periods where that 10% isn't realized, and there might be markets that are down 40 or 50%. Sure. So at the front, what the independent advisor does is they actually you know do train and they educate the client as to the potential outcomes that they might expect over time. So when it does happen, uh, they're not happy about it, uh, but they're not upset to the point where they actually pull their money and, and decide to do something else. So there's a there's a real important aspect here that I don't think has ever been addressed in a significant way, and that is trying to get people to be more comfortable with the expectations longer term around the capital markets and the expectations on returns. Wait, are, are you suggesting markets go up and down? <laughs> is is that the implication? Here? That happens, yes. Yes, sir. So that, that is shocking. That is not what my broker uh, used to tell me <laughs> back in the day. So- let, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned Merton Miller earlier, and um, obviously Gene Fama is a big part of the firm. Uh, you work with a number of Nobel laureates and, and other people 
of equal intellectual heft, uh, Ken French at Dartmouth, mm -hmm. is another person who has certainly moved the needle when it comes to how we think about where returns come from. What do these various people, um, what are their roles at the firm and how do they affect portfolio construction? Well, they're all fully engaged. So when you talk about all those names, and it's, it's so it's Merton Miller, it's, it's Gene Fama, it's Gene Fama, it's Ken French, it's and Bob and Merton, more. Mm -hmm. um, it's Myron Scholes is on our board. So we've got you know three or four uh, Nobel four Prize winners right. that that actually are participating in the firm uh, in some respect. So um, the great thing about it is 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 um, they all are are actively engaged uh, in the business uh, mm -hmm. in, in some aspect, particularly with Ken French and, and Gene Fama. They're you know, on the uh, investment committee, and they participate in all investment discussions around the firm. So, uh, that's is that a little bit intimidating? You you want to do something, and a Nobel laureate looks at you and goes, "No, that's a terrible idea." <laughs> how, how does that impact what the process is like, uh, or is it more nuanced than that? No, it's it's very it's what I what I come back to is is, and we talk a lot about this at the firm. We talk about models, and, mm -hmm. and models are not reality. And models are, are used to get a sensible view about way, about a way, the way things work. Um, so what Dimensional has always been about, and I think this is why we have such a long-term uh, relationship with our end clients, is you know, we're not going to come out with anything that's, a, that's, that's fancy or different just to, to do it for marketing reasons. We, we have this, this group of people uh, that look at the capital markets. They're empiricists. They, they look at data all day long. Uh, what they want to come out is they want to come out with something that's that's sensible, that's reasonable, uh, that's repeatable. Uh, th there's a there's an aspect to it that, um, from my perspective, uh, for for advisors and then for their clients, is that there's an expectation that we are going to deliver something that uh, is going to be implemented in, in a in a very very robust way, mm -hmm. um, and that's I think a big a differentiator for Dimensional. So. Let, let's talk about some of the other popular investing trends, some of which Dimensional has embraced, others you've decided to eschew. Um, smart beta is a marketing term. There's an ongoing debate between Rob Barnard of Research Affiliates and Cliff Asnes of AQR. Cliff basically says smart beta is just Fama French factor investing in a different marketing wrapper. How do you guys look at smart beta? Yeah, smart beta is a is a catch all phrase for you know for multi factor investing mm -hmm. uh, in in certain ways. I, you know the way I look at it, and and I'm definitely not in the academic circles like the Famas and Frenches and so forth. But uh, you know I, I look at Dimensional's existence in 1981. We started with the first small cap uh, portfolio, um, and that was a that was probably the, the first multi factor portfolio that was out there. Ninety uh, two Fama and French, you know. Uh, uh, introduced the uh, the three factor model, um, mm -hmm. and and that was when the value portfolios were launched back in 1992. So, what I would say is I think Dimensional has always been you know through our connections with academics externally and even through our internal academic teams, uh, we've always been on the cutting edge of of multi factor investing. Um, but most importantly, and David Booth will point this out, is that you know we've been able not only to uh, recognize the, the data and the research that is out there, but we've been able to implement uh, in a very, very effective way. So when you look at our our returns and our quote unquote body of work over uh, 36 years, 1981 was was the launch of the microcap. Mm -hmm. We've not only been able to uh, capture the multi-factor uh, rate of return, but we've been, actually been able to add some value from an implementation perspective. So um, it's a it's a combination of I think those two parts. One is is great portfolio management. 
uh, and great implementation, but there's also the great research aspect as well. So there's a lot of research out there in the public domain. Uh, the question is, is, is can you implement uh, on, that, uh, on that research in a, in a very effective, efficient way? So we know the challenges with small cap because of the liquidity issue when you have to really keep an eye on outflows, otherwise it's very disruptive. Let's talk about one of the other original Fama French factors, which is value. This has been a rough decade for value investing. We know it tends to be cyclical, but how do we deal with the fact that value has been underperforming growth for most of the period following the financial crisis? During the, at least the growth and expansionary period, growth has done really well. I think there's always going to be these big trends, if you will, or, or kind of these, uh, these movements in markets that reflect uh, well or poorly on a specific area of the market or asset class. So um, having been around uh, this for 25 years now, uh, you look back at every uh, uh, you know, factor, if you will, there's always going to be moments and in, in, in periods of time where they don't actually outperform or have the premium that, uh, that we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, equities underperformed T-bills for 16 years from 1966 to 1982. Uh, value underperformed growth all through the 90s you know, until the tech uh, bust uh, in, in, in March of 2000. I, I recall hearing... You know, this Warren Buffett guy, this value investor, he's lost his touch. Yep. I want to say late 98, early 99. Yep. Yeah, Buffett's washed up. He'll never make any money again. Yeah, yeah. So you, you go through these periods where a particular style or factor is out of style. How do you counsel advisors and clients to, hey, this is a normal part of market cycles we have to stay the that's, course. That's just it. It's counseling. It's 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 education beforehand, and then it's counseling during, and then it's, you know, a kind of a recognition after the fact. So, you know, you look back at that 1999 period that you were just mentioning when Warren Buffett was out of favor, or value was out of favor. Uh, I think it was in like three months. Uh, value actually um, turned around so quickly, or ro- actually growth dropped through the floor. Right. Came uh, value the, came roaring back, the, the, and then some. Yeah, the ten-year numbers on value versus growth. Value was. Uh, ahead of growth as of you know, you know mid 2000 so you had nine or nine and a half years or nine and three quarters years where growth was just pounding value and then within a three month period value over that whole 10 year period actually had a better performance in growth wow. so That's i amazing. think you know there's a lot of stories like that that people can need to recognize and see and i think we spent quite a bit of time you know counseling and advisors counsel their clients to say look we've built a an investment plan an investment policy We've allocated the assets in this way. Uh, we've, we've, we're confident that uh, you're in a position that you can withstand uh, you know, ups and downs in the markets or ups and downs in particular uh, parts of the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you can stay with that long term, you're going to be highly and well, and well rewarded uh, over that time. So what is it that keeps a co-CEO up at night? What do, you, what do you think about and what are some of the concerns that you have looking at everything going forward? Well, I think f- at, a d- at a dimensional level, I think for me, it's just um, our growth. You know, so we've grown from fifty billion back in uh, two thousand three to to six hundred billion today. That's um, quite a growth rate. Quite a growth rate. And if you if you look at that growth rate and, and whether we'll match that growth rate the next fifteen years or not, um, you know, from a size perspective, you know, one of the challenges that David Booth laid out to the firm in two thousand three was, look, if we stay on the same growth path that we've had been on up to two thousand three, we're gonna be a five hundred billion dollar firm by the end of two thousand eighteen. 
And here really? we are, here we are at six hundred billion. And, and that's it, a fantastic forecast. Yeah, and it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a here's the the projection and here's where we want to be. It wasn't that. It was more of, look, we're stewards of client assets. We're stewards of this business. Uh, we need to make sure that we have the ability, the infrastructure, and so forth to service those assets in the right way, and do it in a, in a in a client centric way. And so it was a challenge to all the managers to make sure our infrastructure was built out in a way that we would be able to do that properly, whether it was portfolio management or research or trading or sales or whatever it might be. So I look at that from a dimensional perspective and say we actually have the same growth rate over the next, uh, you know, uh, 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to be uh, have a prepared work uh, team to be able to handle that kind of uh, uh, change in the uh, in the size and growth of the firm. So we're, we're hoping that. Um, you know, from an education and training perspective, we're hoping to build out quite a few things around dimensional. Does um, does that growth rate eventually have to plateau? Does the where does the law of big numbers start to say, all right, you you went up twelve x in in a dozen years? Don't expect that going forward. Yeah, there's a natural, I think, plateau. I'm sure at some point. I'm not sure when and where that is, um, but we do know people uh, consume uh, their retirement and so forth. At, you know, at four or five or six percent per year or so. The bigger the asset base, uh, the the larger the outflow is going to naturally be just from mm-hmm. consumption. So, um, you know, we we recognize that. Um, I, I think the the big issues that I think about on a on a industry basis is obviously um, wealth wealth transfer. So that we're coming up on big this generational big wealth generational transfer. shift. Um, you know, advisors are thinking about succession planning. Uh, technology is is becoming a big question. You know, how to clients and how do advisors access uh, the capital markets and how do they how do they interact with one another uh, mm-hmm. when they're thinking about this client relationship uh, you know going forward so those are things that I think dimensional wants to be involved in we want to support the advisor and make sure that they're as competent and well positioned as they possibly can be uh, to deliver to clients the the right solution uh, over the next uh, you know 20 or 30 years Uh, We have been speaking with Dave Butler. He is co-CEO of Dimensional Fund Advisor. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things factor-based investing. Uh, You can find those wherever finer podcasts are sold, iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, and, of course, Bloomberg.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at... MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been I've been looking forward to this for a while. I have a ton of questions I did not get to. So before I get to my favorite questions, there are a few things I just have to ask you about. Um, what's your day like? What do you spend most of your time on? Because I know you wear a couple of different hats, and I'm have a hard time understanding what the day to day is like for you. Well, I've been telling friends that have asked me about this co-CEO role, you know, what's it like and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? And I always tell them, 
you know, I've been in the advisor business for 25 years. So it's as, a, as an old athlete, it's sort of like a basketball coach who's been a coach for 25 years now becoming the athletic director. Right. And you got to know a little bit about softball and water polo and so forth and so on. So I'm in the uh, stage of actually learning a, about a, a lot of aspects of the business outside of just financial advisor mm-hmm. uh, space. And that's been, uh, been a good learning curve. And I, I think the bigger point uh, for me is that uh, you know David Booth, you know founder, um, you know uh, chairman, uh, who he's he's very involved in the firm. So he and I and Gerard O'Reilly, who's the other co-CEO, uh, we spend significant amounts of time thinking about the business and about mm-hmm. where Dimensional needs to fit into the business generally, and how we want to prepare ourselves to be uh, viable uh, partners, if you will, to the advisors out there in the in the space. So let let's talk about. You know, volleyball and water polo and everything else. You you were running the advisor side. Does this mean you spend time thinking about institutional and trading and accounting and taxes and like where where does your line of responsibility stop? How yeah. how much are you responsible for? And and what is Gerard responsible? How does is it divide and conquer? You sort of split up the fiefdom or do you each work together on on different areas? Yeah, people ask that often about co-CEOs. General, it's a tough generally. gig to it's make a, work. It's a tough gig to make work. I, th- I think, you know, if you look at Gerard's background, so he's he's uh, CIO. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been at Dimensional 14 years. Uh, he's a, uh, a Caltech PhD, so he's a rocket scientist. Um, so he's got the right pedigree. He's, a, he's an investment guy. He can go toe-to-toe uh, with the FAMAs and the Frenches and, mm-hmm. and talk about investment issues in a, in a significant way. Uh, I've been, you know, grew up more on the on the sales side, the advisor side, and so forth. So, uh, we're we're both involved in the entire aspect, entire you know, broad part of the firm. But we're also uh, probably more focused on our our individual areas. Mm-hmm. Um, the the key with CoCOs is you, you got to be collaborative, you got to be open, you got to be transparent, and and frankly, uh, you know, Gerard's been just a terrific partner in terms of just, you know, how do we want to go about the business? What do we see going forward? You know, if we continue to grow and we're a trillion dollar or two trillion dollar money management firm, what do we need to do to be ready for that kind of um, uh, stewardship around assets of that size? So, mm-hmm. it's it's been a great collaboration. Co CEOs or co anything can be problematic if you have people that are are political or, or not uh, right. overly in, in, engaged in being uh, transparent and collaborative. But uh, but Gerard's been terrific with that and and very happy with uh, how how that's worked out. When when we've seen co CEOs at Fortune 500 companies, it doesn't really seem to work. There's perhaps a little too much testosterone in the room to make it work. You guys seem to have found a, a good rhythm together. I think that's right. And we, and we both grew up in the firm. So I've been here 24 years. He's been here 14 years. We know each other. We've known each other well for, for all that time. Uh, and I don't think there's this, I think we're, maybe where Kosiovs go uh, go south occasionally is if, if you got two people coming from different backgrounds or even different firms and they get squished together. Right. And then there becomes sort of a political question about who's going to be the lead, who's going to out, outdo the next guy or gal. Um, and we just don't have that uh, at Dimensional. And then that's saying I, I give David Booth a lot of credit around culture. I'm I'm a big culture guy, uh-huh. uh, being a, being an old athlete and being on a, a bunch of good teams and a bunch of bad teams. Um, you know, for me, it strikes me that you know culture is the is the paramount issue around around success. I'm, I think I'm you glad have to have that. I'm glad you brought that up. So let we could talk about sports, but it's really just a giant metaphor for business. Yep. Are bad team? Do bad teams have bad culture because they lack talent, or does bad culture lead to talented teams becoming bad? 
I think it's a it's a combination of both, but I, I think it culture starts with leadership. Culture starts with expectation. Uh, culture starts with uh, a a view that the leadership says we are going to be a team and we're going to be a collaborative team and we're going to have success doing that. So it's I think it's vision. I, I think it's um, you know we always talk about stories. You know you 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 listen to a particular story about a particular team or about a t- particular company, and those stories go a long way in in terms of setting the culture around how things uh, work or, or don't work. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. You know, David Booth uh, did a video a while back, uh, and just as a, as a side kind of toss in, somebody asked him about his childhood and, and, and how he, uh, what his first job was. And he, and he basically told the story about his first job being uh, a shoe salesman uh, in a small town in Kansas. And he said, you know, uh, he said, I used to um, sell shoes to women and, um, you know, basically if the shoe didn't fit, I'd tell them that it didn't fit and uh, that they should come back another time. And, um, you know, so... The, so the, that career didn't last very long. The career didn't last very long. But it, but it, it laid down, it made a point, which is, you know, it's, it's about the client. It's about doing the right thing for the client, doing what's best for them. And when somebody says a story like that and people hear that, and it resonates culturally around the firm. And so, I, you know, I think Dimensional is very, very unique in that respect. I, you know, I, I can't imagine being somewhere for 24 years without feeling really good about what we're trying to accomplish. And, and back to my story of be- meeting Dan the first time, is like, you know, I think we've been on a mission. I think the mission has been about delivering the, the right client experience and doing it in a good way. Uh, we've never been worried about goals or getting it to a certain size. It's always been about, hey, if we do the right thing, do it well, uh, the success or size or whatever might come from it is going to happen on its own. Uh, and it's sort of the, the John Wooden analogy, which is just, you know, if you, you, you prepare yourself, you, you tie your shoes, you work on certain things, and then you go into the game and the expectation is you're going to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you don't win, it's okay because you prepared yourself, you've done as best you can, and you worked hard at it, and, uh, and you delivered what you, what you said you were going to deliver. And, and I think somewhere along our interview, I should disclose my firm um, manages assets, and we are also a dimensional client. So I'm very familiar with both your process, your portfolios, and your culture, but I, I wanted to make sure that that um, is out there so people understand this. Um, you mentioned David Booth. In public, he is a sort of quiet, reflective person, but I've, I've interviewed him. I've had lunch with him. I get the sense that internally in Dimensional, he's a little more of a boisterous chairman. What What's it like working with him? Oh, David's great. I've, I've worked with him now for 24 years, and He's a he's a super insightful guy, um, you know. He's a very modest guy, uh, you know. Even when we talk about even our body of work and, and the fact that Dimensional's had this portfolio out there for 36 years and it's outperformed the the benchmark by 140 basis points for 36 years, you know, those are the types of things we haven't necessarily talked about quite often uh, enough, uh, in my view. I think you know the idea of of, of our competence and our body of work. I think those are things that I think could be elevated uh, from a dimensional perspective. But David's a very modest guy. He's super insightful, very strategic. Um, he he's uh, he makes you know great business calls very very quickly. So I've been around him long enough to know when you know David makes a comment about a particular business situation, uh, his insights are are are, are very very good, um, mm-hmm. and they usually are very very right. <laughs> so um, he's a great voice to have. Uh, he's a he's a great person to have around. Uh, I'd also give him credit. I, I I use some of his kind of 
views on management and how people react. He's 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 definitely a macro manager, mm-hmm. uh, so he's he's willing to give people a chance. I.e., Gerard and myself delegate um, it to you guys and let you carry the ball. He'll he'll participate. He'll he's been a great chairman. He'll act. He'll participate in in big questions and big strategic issues. Um, yeah, he'll keep a, a close eye on what what's happening and make sure that he. Uh, sees things happening in the way he thinks they should, uh, but he also is very uh, good about giving somebody some space to run with an idea that he thinks is pretty positive. And, and going back to the advisor business, you know, Dan Wheeler uh, was the guy that came in with an idea uh, to use these funds with with advisors, i.e., the retail business. And, and David, to his credit, um, uh, contemplated that concept and thought about it thoroughly around you know are these assets going to be compatible? And he made a decision to allow Dan to go do that in a in a methodical way that would be would be different than what's been out there in the past. So now, I give him a lot of credit for now that. Now, Dan was essentially an independent advisor outside of dimensional funds, but it was pretty clear he was raising a lot of money for the company. At what point did that relationship become much more explicit, if that's the right word? Yeah, I think he, uh, he became an employee, I think, a couple of years into it, so maybe mm-hmm. 91, 1991, 1992. Um, so you know Dan's an interesting guy, and he, um, you know, he was a broker in his prior life, and you know he would uh, he would say he'd use the term uh, the never having to say you're sorry approach to investing. So he felt as a commissioned broker or a stock uh, broker uh, that he felt there's a lot of times when you know he'd go and pitch a stock to a client, and then the stock w- wouldn't do well, and he'd have to go back and say, hey, I'm sorry, it didn't right. work out the way we expected. And so his view was if you, if you could move away from that, you could get a client educated on the capital markets, uh, get them very comfortable about the expected returns in a market, um, and educate them in a, in a proper way that you wouldn't have to have these, oh, I'm sorry, uh, type of conversations with your clients. So it's a very unique uh, way to view the, the investment space. So, so you mentioned um, David Booth doesn't really discuss um, the company's achievements publicly all that much. The firm has a reputation as a kind of private company that doesn't do a lot of press. I mean, we don't see your names out in the media all that much, which I get the sense is by design, but it leads to lots of misconceptions. What what sort of misconceptions are out there about dimensional funds? Well, I think we, uh, you know, I don't know if it's purposely or not, but uh, I, I think we've always allowed our clients to talk for us. So if if you or any other advisor or institutional client thinks positively of what we've we've been able to do for them uh, and for their clients, then they're going to speak highly of us, and that's a that's a way that's a public presence kind of a concept as well. So uh, we've always uh, sort of limited ourselves in the public presence uh, type of a space. Uh, we're not advertisers. Um, We've talked to clients in the past. They don't necessarily want us to advertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't mind having an elevated public presence. So when when you know Bloomberg does a uh, an article on Dimensional, an advisor is able to, a third party uh, piece, an advisor is able to hand that 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 article to a client, um, and the client says, "Oh, okay, I get a little bit better sense of mm-hmm. who Dimensional is." That's a positive uh, for for that client and and for advisor and for the Dimensional. So uh, we're in the, we're in the business of of you know. Trying to do the right thing for the client, uh, being very robust from an academic perspective and a research perspective, working on the on the edges, if you will, from an implementation perspective, and we think you know our implementation and our delivery of the portfolios are as efficient as as they can get. 
Uh, and that's probably a part of the, the story that we don't, we don't describe enough um, differentiating ourselves versus competitors. So, so let's talk about some of those competitors. Um, if we look at the big three in the world of indexing and ETFs, Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, they have become fierce competitors in the ETF space, which is growing very rapidly. You guys have made the decision, no, we don't want to be in the ETF space. It's it's subject to inflows and outflows, and it's very retail and not necessarily our interest. Is is that something that might be revisited in the future? or Because it seems like so much of the business is moving in the direction of ETFs. How does DFA think about that? Yeah, I think we're very client centric. So, you know, we've had discussions about ETFs with with clients for for many years. As a matter of fact, I think it was probably ten years ago where David Booth and I went out and talked to clients about their their interest and need for an ETF from Dimensional. And and at that point in time, it, it there wasn't that high of an interest uh, for that. And um, you know, but that doesn't mean that we wouldn't review it again if 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 for whatever reason. Advisors, for instance, came back and said, "Listen, it'd be great to have an ETF for these reasons, and we think you're the right firm to do that." Um, then, obviously, we we would be we would listen to that and, and be uh, approachable around that. So, when when you look at our our orientation around our, our various funds, I mean, we have sustainable funds and social funds. It's my next and, question in my mind that, that I wanted to go to, I mentioned the smart beta trends, and and you guys have have really stepped with, stuck with just pure factor investing. How do you look at the rise of ESG, the the desire for fill in the blank, uh, environmental, sustainable, social yep. governance, what have you. How does how does Dimensional look at that trend and the desire for for that, especially from from women investors and from younger millennial investors? That seems to be where a lot of the demand is coming from. Yeah, you know, that's a great a great question. It's a great example of how we've worked with. Our clients in the past, and that basically, clients came to us and said, "Listen, you know, when you look at those areas, the you know ESG and so forth, the the uh, the options out there for the advisor weren't that great. So high expense, you know, mm -hmm. uh, highly concentrated, uh, bad performance, and so forth, and so on. So the the question was, could you dimensional? Uh, other than that, it's terrific. Yeah, other than that, it's terrific. <laughs> could you dimensional come to us with a solution? Uh, that looked very much like what your solutions are today, uh, but with a, uh, a you know a, a focus and a, a, a detail around around uh, social and, and sustainable, and so we um, we went back to the, basically the lab and and we came back with portfolios that uh, were very highly diversified. They were low cost. Uh, they did recognize uh, a lot of these uh, ESG issues in, in terms of portfolio management. Uh, and we were able to come back with a portfolio that we thought, from a capital market perspective, made sense uh, for the end client, uh, with the nod towards being sustainable or, or social or, or whatever the um, the issue might be. So that that's been a, a huge success for us. I think we've we've now got ten year track records in those areas, and those portfolios track really closely to our standard portfolios, hmm. uh, the core portfolios. Um, so the performance has been terrific. The expectations have been met. Um, and for clients and for advisors who are, are interested in, in that uh, uh, aspect of investing, um, there are available options for them. So f we feel really good about that, and we think it's been a, a real success for, for all sides. And, and going forward, I'm sure there's going to be more interest in that from, uh, from clients and uh, so forth on the, on the so, go forward. So what else might there be more interest in in, in going forward? ESG is clearly 
on the rise, but its roots go back decades. Smart beta, um, perhaps not uh, as far back. Factor investing, even further back. What do you imagine the next big trend in investing is going to be? And I honestly don't know if there's an answer, but you have a different vantage point. Maybe you see it a little differently. You know, there's always going to be another, you know, academic paper or another area of research that that helps us refine uh, how we mm -hmm. think about the capital markets. And um, we've seen that recently with, you know, profitability, for instance. Uh, so there, there's going to be more of that, uh, you know. For me, I think the the bigger change, and I've been really inspired by recently, is I think this. Um, I would call it the human element uh, mm -hmm. of advice, behavioral it's finance. The behavioral, it's, it's it's the advisor's uh, contribution to the end client result that 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 comes from this interaction at a human level. So, when I see, sit with advisors now, uh, the concept of trust uh, has has elevated quite a bit, and and trust comes from a couple different areas. One is is competency. So at Dimensional's level, you know, we've got to be able to deliver access to the capital markets in the most efficient way. And I think we have. We've got a 36-year track record of, of competence. Uh, for the advisor, you know, the advisor provides a lot of different um, wealth management activities. They, they know the client intimately. Uh, they know about their hopes and their dreams and so forth. And so when I think about the movement of financial advice, uh, it's gone down that path, um, you know, where historically, 35 years ago, when I started in the business, it was about trying to sell a stock or get a commission off a stock uh, a purchase or sell. Uh, it's changed to a holistic wealth management view. It's changed to start thinking about people's, you know, hopes, their dreams, their children, their charitable uh, giving. And doing that in a very systematic, uh, efficient way from a capital market perspective, you know, using building blocks like Dimensional Delivers uh, to be able to execute on the client's expectations. And so I, I think by executing on the client expectation, then the aspect of trust develops and it continues to build over time. And so I see these great relationships. I've been you know, in this for 25 years and we've got advisors who've worked with us for 25 years and their clients who've worked with them for 25 wow. years. And when you see those types of clients come into the office and talk about their experience, their journey, the fact that they feel okay about about their investments and about their retirement and, and where they want to go in the future and that's how their a, kids That's are a great going. feeling. It's an amazing feeling. And so whenever I get, you know, you wake up some mornings, you go, gosh, you know, can I, you know, is it another day of, of doing X or Y? You know, you, it just takes one conversation with a really satisfied client that makes you feel like, hey, I, I got it. The, origin, the original reason why we started this was we wanted to make the client experience great. We wanted clients to feel good about their retirement, feel like they were going to be okay. And when you get to see that through the advisors who are working with these clients for long, long times, time periods, it's just a, it's really um, a, a feel-good kind of a thing for anybody that works in that space. So, so I'm going to assume that we're not going to see a uh, DFA crypto fund launching anytime soon. <laughs> you will not. <laughs> so I like the idea of holistic asset management. It, it, it's a good term, and it really does a nice job describing the full 360. So let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, tell us the most important thing that we don't know about Dave Butler. Great question. Um, there's probably a lot that you don't know about Dave Butler, but um, I know a lot more now than I did earlier. <laughs> that's today. true. Uh, oh, here's one because it's it's pretty relevant. Uh, so I, Steve Kerr, 
just won the uh, the NBA championship with Golden State. I think he's mm-hmm. got eight rings now. Right. Uh, as both a player and a coach. As both players coach. He and I played together on a U.S. national team back in the day. We got the room for a, a month together. No kidding. Uh, and I have to say I've taken a lot of inspiration from watching him coach uh, a team of, of – major talents but you know taking that team of major talents and developing them and knitting it into a collaborative unit uh, is just genius and and I, I don't know if people give him the kind of credit that he should get but uh, it's an amazing thing to watch you know I, I read stuff about him quite often uh, you know I, Do you I laugh take it, about it no I take it to my team and I say look oh, here's, for- here's something that we ought to think about and here's something we ought to view huh. and look at as well so quick example is just on hiring I can remember asking him when he played at the University of Arizona, these teams were great. The players that I had met were great people. And I said, how does that happen? Uh, and he says to me, he says, well, he said, Lute Olson, who was a coach at the time, he says, we have, a, we have an approach where we bring a player in for the weekend, uh, and on Monday morning we get together as a team, and, and Lute asks the question, even if it's the number one player in the country, he says, do you guys want to play with this guy? Really? And, yeah, and if we, if we said no, then, then he'd Done. stop recruiting uh-huh. him. Wow. So I actually took that into our team at Dimensional for some time, and, and, and we, we had the same kind of approach. We had nine or ten people interview a, a new team member, mm-hmm. and it never was my decision, I, and I'd pass it to the team. We'd start with the youngest person first, and we'd say, hey, do you want to play with this person? This is a person that's going to be on your team that mm-hmm. you have to play with, and do you want to do it or not? And so that's, I think, a great way to think about building out a team. You know, you want to, you want to find ways to, to elevate the collaboration and the, the – uh, the, the enjoyment of the team that that that's really quite quite fascinating and and they are building what looks like a dynasty for the ages a franchise yeah right yeah. for sure um tell us uh, about your early mentors who changed the way you look at the financial business and uh investing well, you mentioned the University of Chicago connection, so mm-hmm. I, I would include all of those folks. The, the, Booth, the Fama, Booth, Fama, Thaler, working right down the Merton, list. Merton Miller. I got mm-hmm. to meet Merton, you know, when I first interviewed, and uh, all of those folks have transformed the capital market experience and the investor experience in, in ways that uh, are are were unimaginable at the time. Uh, but the whole, you know, the the energy and the passion and the enthusiasm for the fact that that markets work, that prices are fair. That you had to invest in a way that's diversified and low cost and tax efficient. Those concepts didn't even hit the radar screen 25 and 30 years ago. That mm. was sort of poo-pooed and laughed at. And now we push forward to today. And and this, you know, when you talk about independent advice, you talk multi-factor investing, you talk about holistic wealth management. You know, those concepts are front and center uh, for any client experience. So to see that transform and I, and know that these guys were part of that and really elevated is is really fun to watch. Let, let's talk about everybody's favorite question. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, finance-related, non-finance. What do you read? I am all about the biography, mm-hmm. autobiographies about the journey. I love just understanding people and how they got to where they are and why they're why they act the way they act. So you know, some of the books that I've read recently, um, you know, uh, Red Shoe Dog, Phil Knight, uh, sure. Nike. Uh, I just read Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. I have um, that. That's in my queue, and I haven't gotten to it yet because it's so big. So big, but it's a, a little great, intimidating. It's a great, great book, and it, you know. But all of these things, really, to me, it's about the struggle. It's mm-hmm. about the journey. You know, people see quote unquote success from people, and and what you realize, and, and this is what I've told David Booth, even with Dimensional. People look at Dimensional, and say, "Well, what a successful firm, and how amazing, and how great." But 
there were time periods when you know the the concept of indexing uh, wasn't even wasn't accepted by anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time when small cap stocks, you know, back in the 1980s, when small caps underperformed for 10 years. Wow. Uh, the S and P 500 by by 10 percent. Wow. That people questioned whether a dimensional as a firm, you know, was was really a firm that could deliver, uh, you know, small cap stock returns. You know, so. There's always going to be a struggle along the way, um, but what's inspiring to me is to watch how that struggle then translates into an action uh, that then leads to this, you know, the success that we've seen. So you, it's fun to watch. You mentioned Shoe Dog. What was so surprising in that book is how many times Nike just, you know, managed to miss the executioner's axe. They yeah. were on the edge yeah. repeatedly in yeah. the early days of the company. Yeah, yeah. Give it. Give us one other book, one other thing that you uh, you read and really enjoyed. Well, I, you know, I, I, anything John Wooden. You know, I, I read that stuff all day long. There's give us a title. John Wooden, The Life. You know, there's a, there's a book that just is John Wooden. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, John Wooden, I think, you know, and I tell the kids this all the time, if, if you, you look at what John Wooden stands for and, and how he – build his pyramid of success and, and mm-hmm. what's involved in the pyramid of success. You know, my view is if, if you follow that in a you know, conceptual way, it's, it's tough not to have success in something. And success meaning that you've given it your all and you've worked at it. And even if you don't win or, win or lose, you know, just the, the knowledge, the satisfaction, you've worked really hard at something, uh, I think is success, success in itself. Hmm. Fit. In, really interesting. What what has you excited today? What what are you really jazzed about in 2018? Uh, well, I, I'd I'd come back to the the aspect of trust in the financial services space. I think I think a lot of trust was lost uh, back in 2008 and 2009. Uh, but I think this I think what we've come out of that uh, segment of time in is is that I think holistic wealth management has has taken its position. Uh, I think independent advice uh, has 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 gained its, uh, its rightful spot. I think uh, indexing, i.e., and then sm- multi-factor investing, which again, which is Dimensional has been doing for 36 years. I think that's front and center. Mm-hmm. So it's satisfying to me to look at all these trends that um, going your way that we identified, you know, 30 years ago that we thought, you know, and again, we didn't tr- we didn't identify them for marketing reasons or for business reasons. We identified because we thought that was we thought independent advice and multi-factor investing and holistic wealth management and, and human element of the advisor, the, the necessity for the advisor to get great results for the client. We thought that was the right thing for the end client, and, and that's what's uh, it's played out. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, failure. <laughs> uh, I, you know, like we all, I've, I've failed many, many times, and, and I, I – you know that the lesson I give the kids is, look, you know, you're going to fail in terms of losing or getting beat or getting knocked down or whatever it might be. And and you know the the question really is, is did you prepare yourself to succeed as 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 best you could? And if you did not succeed, as as in i.e. a loss, uh, you know, did you get back up and dust yourself off and 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 do it again? So I, I think that's the lesson you learn from failure. You know, you mentioned did you did you prepare yourself to win? Um, Giants coach, I'm drawing a blank on his name, Tom... Tom Coughlin. Tom Coughlin wrote a book, Earn the Right to Win, which is that exact... I find a lot of sport books don't really... They tend to be a little cliched. They don't really apply to business all that well. That book, more than any other that I've read, really talks to exactly what you're describing. 
if you are prepared, if you have done the heavy lifting beforehand, yep. well, then you just go out and do what you know how to do. And if the wind comes great, and if it doesn't, go back to the drawing board and start over. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think and have the passion. You know, find something that you're passionate about because at the end of the day, if you if you fail and you get knocked down, you know, if you're passionate about something, you're going to keep coming back until you until you get to that quote unquote success platform. What do you do for fun? What do you do outside of the office that you are passionate about? Yeah, well, I think my fun now, my my knees and ankles and stuff from basketball are probably a little banged up, so I, I do. Uh, catch and shoot for the, or I catch and pass for the kids, the boys. Um, but I play sand volleyball, so mm-hmm. that, that's sort of my passion. My my two daughters play sand volleyball now. Mm-hmm. It's it's nice on the legs. I can get a good workout at my age and um, and feel good the next day. Not feel two man, four up. man, how two man. I'm still playing two man. So. That's a an exhausting game. Yeah, I used to so, play that um, back in my youth. Yeah, so that's the challenge. Just try, yes. just try to keep playing two man as as many years as I can. So I'd love to get to sixty. And still be playing too, man. That would be that would be a good an ultimate goal for me. Um, so let me ask you a question. You mentioned the kids. If a a millennial or a recent college graduate came up to you and said they were interested in a career in financial services or asset management, what sort of advice would you give them? You know, I just read an article flying out here yesterday. I thought was was really great. It's it and it was a commencement speech. It was a guy I can't remember who it was, but his his basic line was grab a mop. Mm-hmm. As in, don't be afraid to do the hard work. Don't be afraid to do the dirty work. Don't be afraid to, you know, quote unquote, come at it every day with your best effort. Um, because what's going to happen? And I tell the younger people, the millennials around dimensional, is, is look, people are going to look at how you how you work. They're going to look at your optimism, your enthusiasm, your energy, and you know when when opportunity comes. Uh, and in, in a name pops into their head for that opportunity, it's going to be the person who's done just that, who's worked hard, who's enthusiastic, who's optimistic, who's, who's smart, um, who's collaborative, all that stuff. So you want to put yourself in a position to get, quote, unquote, lucky by, by preparing yourself and doing things really well. And hopefully somebody sees you and taps you on the shoulder and says, you know, Barry, this is the person that we want to have run this, or we want to have this person go do that. Uh, and that's where you know success in a career comes from. So what is it that you know about the world of financial services today that you wish you knew 25 years ago when you were first starting? Well, I think, I think the aha moments for me was, you know, I, I got a hold of this thing called the Matrix Book. Mm-hmm. Um, and Seen the, it? Yeah, the Matrix Book is a, is a book that basically shows the returns of the capital markets over time. And so the the lessons that I learned from that, you know, in business school you don't learn you you learn about discounted cash flow and how to how to price a stock and whether you should buy that stock or you should sell that stock short. Um, that's one aspect of finance, but the the broader aspect from an investment perspective for the average person, for my mom, you know, how does my mom get comfortable with that she's going to be okay in retirement? Well, she needs to know about just the simple averages, the simple averages that, that come with the capital market returns. Mm-hmm. She also needs to know what you just pointed out earlier with value or size or, or the markets in general is that that, that return is not going to be there every year. So there's a lot of lessons around uh, a big picture, backing off and understanding what, what is the stock market return? What is small cap stocks return? What are large cap stocks return? Why would you diversify internationally? Um, why would you have fixed income instead of equity? Uh, and all of that goes into this big puzzle that I think, the, again, the advisors do a great job of, of sitting down and providing the human element, understanding the client in a, in a way that um, 
a stockbroker 30 years ago wouldn't and couldn't. Um, they're having those conversations now, and they're part of that person's life to be able to help them deliver uh, on the experience that's going to be the right one for the client. A- absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Dave Butler. He is co-CEO of Dimensional Funds Advisors. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 200-plus such conversations we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana is my audio engineer slash producer who keeps me on time and on track with these conversations. Taylor Riggs is my booker producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.